I used to work at a product testing company where clients would have us mail products to consumers to get feedback. Often clients would use our final reports to decide if the product was ready or not for launch, even though the process could take 12 weeks. I was always surprised by the clients who would balk at the timing of the reports and sometimes choose not to purchase our services at all. Only later, when I began at the client side, did I realize why timing is so critical. Many businesses can't wait 12 weeks to know if their product is ready to launch. While not all research can be accelerated, one way to speed up those timelines is to adopt agile research. Agile research really came to, well, how do we go from I have a question to doing a piece of research to I have the results to the team knows what to do about it in a week. In today's episode, we'll discuss agile research, a method that all businesses can use to learn rapidly and grow. This is Digging for Insights, the marketing research podcast for insights professionals and businesses looking to deeply understand their customers so they can grow. I'm Stephen Griffiths, a Fortune 500 corporate researcher. Join me as we talk with experts about inspiring case studies, career advice, and research methods that will lead to growth. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Monica Wingate. Monica is CEO of DigSite, an online qualitative platform. And today, I'm hoping to talk about a few topics with Monica. First, uh, career advice. Monica's had the extraordinary opportunity to work in a number of different places. She's worked in corporate research for ad agencies, in academia, has started her own consulting practice, and now actually owns a technology platform, which is used in marketing research. Later on in the interview today, we'll also be talking a bit about agile research and what that means and how it can change the way that we do research today. And finally, we'll finish up with a few case studies for how Monica's research has actually made impact at the businesses she has worked on. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Could you start off by telling a little bit about yourself right now and then maybe start back at undergrad and helping us understand a little bit of what your career looks like? Sure. Well, as you said, I'm currently the co-founder and CEO of DigSite, and I have been in this market research slash technology world for almost 25 years now. So I started off way back in the day in Arizona, getting my undergrad in business, and I took a job uh, out of undergrad in sales where I was kind of out visiting customers and lo and behold, a lot of customers were asking for the same new product. I kind of got excited about helping the marketing team with that and realized we needed market research and kind of got me to thinking about a market research career. So I um, wasn't able to find a job in market research, but I was able to go back to graduate school and I got accepted to UW-Madison's uh, AC Nielsen Center for Market Research, which was uh, one of really two grad programs in market research at the time and went through that program and that really launched my career. So I have done a ton of things from, I worked at General Mills. Um, I interned at a market research agency. I worked for an advertising agency. I was the director of the AC Nielsen Center and worked in academia for a few years. I started my own consulting practice and then I developed and built a technology platform. So I guess I've done a lot of things. 
Wow, that's incredible. It's interesting. A lot of our listeners are considering, you know, where to take their careers. And I love that you have that varied experience, right? You've got agency experience, client side experience, academia, starting your own company. It's sort of the whole smorgasbord, which is awesome. I'd love to go back uh, to your earlier comments about choosing where you wanted to go to enter into a marketing research career. Help me understand a little bit more of what the impetus was. Sure. Well, some of it was in in undergrad itself because I took, it wasn't really the market research class that kind of got me interested. It was, again, the new products class that got me interested. But at that time, they were had a case study in the in the textbook about multidimensional scaling and how you could ask people how one car is like another car. And from that, you could derive what characteristics were important to someone in buying a car. And I thought, that's crazy. How can you do that? So I got kind of interested in, in market research, but I didn't necessarily know, again, how to pursue that. So I think that was kind of an impetus. But when I was working in the sales position and I realized that, you know, four customers were asking for the same new product and I went to the president, it was a smaller company. I went to the president and said, I think we should make this product. And he said, well, prove it to me. And I didn't know how to do that. And so that's kind of what got me to, okay, well, what did I learn about in undergrad about market research and how do I prove that you can, you know, that this is a good new product idea. So that kind of that whole process of starting to talk to customers and figure out how to get data to prove that something was worth doing, it just really excited me and it, it kind of got me interested. And it was real interesting because that was actually in um, a technology company. They were like, well, you know, if you really want to do marketing or, you know, in, in our company, you really should go get an engineering degree. <laughs> and I'm like, well, if I'm going to go back to school... <laughs> I'm not going to get an engineering degree. Like I'm going to go do what I want. So I'm like, well, I could do market research for like toothpaste. That would be fine with me. I don't really care what the product is. And so that's kind of what got me down that path of, okay, if that's really what I want to do, how do I get from here to there? And from what I could tell, those companies like the P&Gs of the world didn't hire you unless you had a graduate degree. So it didn't look like there was this upwardly mobile path through just working that could get me there. And that's kind of like, well, okay, then I'll go get that graduate degree because that's really the pedigree that these companies are looking for. It's not a kind of promote your way into market research. That totally makes sense. And so you mentioned before that the two sort of main areas was the AC Nielsen Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and uh, one other program. Do you want to talk me through how you learned about those programs? Yeah. So there was a marketing professor at University of Arizona where I got my undergrad that I kind of went to to ask, well, you know, where should I go? And, and U of A did have a a graduate program, but really it was a PhD program in marketing that I could have gone through. And and I I thought about it, but I again really wasn't interested in an academic career. So I, I really didn't think a PhD was what I wanted. From her I found out about UW Madison and then University of Georgia. I didn't even apply to Georgia. I did happen to know some people that lived in Wisconsin and and they actually, um, I had worked at a theater company for a few years and they knew about the beautiful summers in Wisconsin. So they, they talked me into the fact that Wisconsin would be a great place to be having completely omitted about winters. Uh, I got accepted and I came in May to visit campus and it was beautiful and I was sold. So off to Wisconsin I went. Wisconsin had such an amazing reputation. There was no doubt in my mind based on what the graduation and, you know, what the students were doing after graduation. But the program was only two or three years old, brand new. In fact, I think we were the third class and the first class was just one student. So it was a brand new program. 
Well, I want to fast forward a little bit. So you, you know, did the MBA program, you went to your first sort of corporate job at General Mills. Can you talk a little bit what that experience was like for you? And then you quickly shifted to to other things like outside of, of corporate research. And so I'm sort of curious to hear what that experience was like. Yeah. So General Mills is, was an amazing uh, experience for me. And and part of it was that they were somewhat unique in the client side world, that they had their own internal market research agency kind of within the company. And so everybody who was new got to start within that organization and really learn the nuts and bolts of conducting research. And that was one of the reasons that I was so excited to get an offer from them was that kind of experience. Because I really wanted to learn everything about market research. Like I, I wanted to get my hands dirty. And so I had about nine month stint where I did uh, everything from some of the very first ethnographic projects that General Mills had. Um, so they were just doing ethnography, like that was a brand new method wow. when I started there, to one of, some of the first conjoint studies. That was brand new uh, technology as well to have access to conjoint. And so, I, you know, I got, we got exposure to really cool things there. And then I went to the client side, the divisions, and I worked on Hamburger Helper and uh all things Betty Crocker, which was fascinating in that they had a seven-year run of no new product successes. And I was involved in the fourth launch of Chicken Helper. It took them launching that product four times to get it right. And so some of the things that really excited me there were about what are the what's the right best practices? What are the right research methodologies? And I got kind of excited and geeked out about how do you decide? I mean, StageGate was also somewhat new and we were just kind of getting into, so when do you do research and how do you make these decisions, these go, no-go decisions? Um, and so I said to the company, I really want to be in best practices. Like I want to figure out what the right methodology that the company should be using. And that really wasn't I guess, in the cards for me. They they had some senior folks there and they didn't really see that as my career path. And so I had a lovely uh, meeting with Linda Cullen, who worked at Pillsbury just down the street. And uh, she said, well, we're creating a corporate consumer insights function and we want you to come you know, help us create best practices for Pillsbury. And I just jumped ship <laughs> pretty much after after just about three years. And, and so I got to do that at Pillsbury, which was really cool. I got to do How America Eats and How America Shops, which were, you know, their need state segmentation studies. I got to work on what was called 4As, which was their loyalty program. Um, I set up best practices for qualitative and ethnographic research. So very exciting until, of course, General Mills and Pillsbury merged. And so rather than kind of going back to the mothership, I was already kind of in the throes of thinking about starting my own business and, you know, what I wanted to do. And I took a job with a, a company in Wisconsin, in Madison, back in Madison, uh, called Lindsay Stone and Briggs. And they were an advertising agency, but they were actually looking to do new product development work and innovation for companies using both a combination of kind of market research and then their creative department to kind of do ideation, create creativity sessions, that kind of stuff. And um, so I was just excited to to try something new and kind of lead a smaller organization. And I think it was just maybe a recognition that it's part of my personality to just to to be someone who likes change and likes trying new things. And in big companies, sometimes you have that opportunities, but but oftentimes it's it's very hard to create that change. And so I just being young and 
excited about trying something new, I thought I'll go try it in a small company. I mean, Lindsay's Tone and Briggs sounds like an interesting opportunity, you know, slight movement away from the corporate environment, but still pretty open to research. It was fascinating because I think they were more open to market research to support you know, ideation and creative than they were market research to support advertising. While I was there, they got a new creative director who seemed more comfortable with the role of what they call planners, right? Um, Account planning. And so I got to learn a little bit about how account planning works and how creatives think about market research and kind of where you where in their mind, market research crosses the line, right? And and that's a really important thing to understand because creatives are looking to be inspired and they're looking to be focused, but they're not necessarily looking for you to stand up and tell them that that their baby is ugly. <laughs> no, it makes sense. So I give them inspiration and ideas to go after as opposed to whether their idea is good or bad. Is that what I'm guessing? Yeah. And focus them before they come up with ideas. Don't give them feedback after so much. And I think that that was just a harder thing for them to to take. But if they had several different directions, sometimes they wanted it, they wanted the feedback, but oftentimes they really just wanted to sell their favorite. And that's just a hard thing. I mean, I you know, you you have the thing you love and you want the client to buy that thing. No, for sure. I mean, in my experience, you know, a lot of people really like the ideas. And I think it's always tricky working with creatives because they have the secret sauce that, you know, coming up with awesome ideas is hard and not everyone can do it. And so how do you provide that that guidance and inspiration without shooting down ideas that that's the way that you get the ideas in the first place? Right. Well, and I mean, my one of my favorite stories, and I've shared it probably to just about everybody I met, was my first assignment at General Mills was actually to test an ad for, for Hamburger Helper. And Yes, I said an ad. That's right. They gave me one ad to test, and I got to tell them if it was good enough to go on air or not spend the money and not air any advertising. So that was, I went through that experience, and of course, the ad was mediocre. And so at the end of that process, I told the team, and this is maybe one of the reasons I wasn't so perfect for the client side, but I told the team and the division head to never put me in that position again, that um, we should never be testing one ad and we should be testing way earlier in the process. And it just wasn't the right process. So I guess that's just a little bit of my personality too. So interesting that you're working across all these different areas. I mean, I think that's still a best practice, right? You want to start early on. You want to have lots of options to choose from and and narrow down as you go, as opposed to a big go, no-go decision. So um, yeah, super interesting. And I love the fact that you've talked about your experience at Lindsay Stone Briggs. A lot of our listeners come from different backgrounds. And I think sometimes people think, oh, the kind of research that's going on is only at really big companies like General Mills or P&G, as you mentioned. But I think there's every ad agency, right? And actually, we'll talk about this in other episodes, but virtually every business has marketing research questions. And it's just the question is, do they have the resources and the, the know-how to, to tackle them? And so that's neat that you had the opportunity to do that both on the corporate side, as well as on the ad agent side at uh, Lindsay Stone Briggs. So moving on to the next stage, uh, was that when you went into academia or what after Lindsay Stone Briggs? There's, you know, there's the good side of ad agencies, which is that it was one of the most exciting, like challenging work I'd ever done. Um, And then there's the downside of just relentless hours. Um, And at that time, I had two little kiddos, and I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom um, continuing at the rate that I was continuing. And so I was looking for 
maybe a way to, to still make a difference in market research, but maybe focus a little bit more on family and work life. And I'm sure lots of people who are listening to this podcast know that moment in your life. And an opportunity came up with, uh, with the Nielsen Center to go back to the program that I had actually had been teaching a new product development class for UW. And uh, this position came up to run the center. And so I took a pretty hefty pay cut to go work in academia, but it was a, it was a fantastic almost five years uh, that I worked there and uh, very, very different because especially this position that I took where, yeah, I was teaching market research classes. I was running a program, which meant I was working with some of the most influential researchers and companies because we had a board of 45 companies. These were all, I mean, Microsoft and McKinsey and General Mills and, you know, just these great companies to help build the curriculum for the students. Then, Everything else had to do with like admissions and, you know, vetting students and, and, you know, helping students that are in the program that might be having problems and all sorts of other things that I realized I wasn't, it wasn't my first love, wasn't my first passion. And so sadly, I, I decided to, uh, to leave and, and ended up basically starting my own, uh, consulting practice. Interesting. Wow. And was there any, sort of question in your mind as you started a new practice? Did you think you needed X number of years of experience or you'd been thinking about it for a long time and you thought, I'm ready to go? Well, I first started off with a couple of, there was a couple of guys here in Madison that had a company and I started working with them. um, And I did that for almost six months and and that just didn't work out. So that's one lesson. I mean, and they say that when you when you try to work with partners or you try to do things, you know, with co-founders, it's very hard to find that right personality mix. And so here I had kind of left, they already had a business started and I, I was to kind of taking the easy path in some ways and just kind of joining in with them. And I really quickly realized that what I wanted to do didn't align with how they wanted to do things. And and so I had to really make a choice. And, and luckily I had, you know, just a enough money in the bank to to say I'm just going to give this a go and you know I have I have enough to pay the bills for 4 months and and at this point I was uh, yeah I was a single mom so I just had to see what happened either I'd get clients or I wouldn't and I'd have to get a job <laughs> and 4 months turned into 6 and 6 months turned into 7 years so wow that's incredible so what was that like for you going out on your own i mean you don't just go from 4 months to 7 years in a blink of an eye was there a strategy or a sort of just getting client by client before you know it, you you had a sustainable business? I think there definitely is a part of it that's kind of, what is it that you're good at that someone is going to want to, you know, buy from you versus buy from every other market research shop out there. And so, you know, I decided to to kind of call that company a brand consulting rather than a market research uh, company because I felt like my real strength or talent was often in the upfront design, but then on the back end, kind of that so what now what side of things. Um, And so I focused on that as really my point of difference. And luckily, I had some some folks give me a shot and think that that's what I was good at. And uh, that got me off the ground. But, you know, I started my consulting in December 2007. So I had a really great first year and I got five clients and I was on my way. And then the Great Recession hit. I ended up basically losing all of my uh, clients after a year wow. because well, two were in banking and financial service and then two were in CPG and uh, they both got laid off. Wow. 
it was okay. Now I got, I have to start again. And luckily I had put some money aside as I did well my first year, but I had to kind of start over and do it again with different companies. And, and, and I think what was really interesting is I ended up finding that there were these family owned companies like uh, Kohler or Sargento, where there's a lot of these kind of Palermo's, these larger companies, but they're family owned as opposed to stockholder led. Uh-huh. Um, and they were still doing market research, not necessarily as much, but they were doing it. And I was able to kind of find my way and then realize that there were this whole tier of companies out there that were in that less than a billion in revenue who really needed market research and didn't have market research departments. Um, And so I ended up kind of, that ended up being really how I grew after my first year. So my kind of my second iteration of the company was really recognizing that while there were some still some big companies that came back and hired me, probably by 2010, 2011, that my first clients all kind of came back to me. But I had in the interim had kind of built this nice business with these more mid-sized companies. And, uh, but it takes a lot of tenacity and it takes a lot of self-confidence and, and maybe for me a little bit of the re- realization that the security that you have on the client side is somewhat of a false security. I mean, if both of the clients that I had were laid off of their CPG jobs, you know, then you just, you know, you have to realize that when you own your own business, it's just right in front of you. You see it every day. You see the bank account balance and you know whether you're going to have to fire yourself. But um, when you're at a company, you don't have that same visibility. And I guess for me, it was something that charged me up as opposed to something that got me um, afraid or feeling insecure. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And getting through the recession, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that did not make that <laughs> through that period, right? So that's awesome to hear you. You got that second breath of life. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you're targeting, you know, these, you know, less than a billion dollar companies who had marketing research needs. How did you reach out to them? Was it sort of looking them up? Hey, here's the 50 companies banking less than a billion and I'm going to email or is there a place you met them or are you just one by one trying to find someone who knows someone who could make a connection? It was a mix of those things. I think I happened to uh, have discovered LinkedIn, and I created a LinkedIn group called New Product Development, Innovation, and Growth, which is now called New Product Development and Agile Innovation. And I started blogging, commenting, and and I people met me through that, which was surprising to me that you know I mean that it actually worked and was effective. I had newsletters and contacts and, you know, people I knew. And so I looked for introductions and referrals and that kind of thing. And most of it came that way through introductions or people who just kind of found me and people who referred me. So it was very kind of organic. Yeah. And that's a, you know, long ways to go. So seven years, it sounds like, you know, decently healthy business, especially when your original clients finally came back to you in, you know, 2011 and onwards. Help me understand the transition to your your current uh, company of Digsite. I had this kind of interesting thing happen, and this was a, in 2012. I had two of my customers, and I, as I said, these customers were kind of coming back to me, and, and they said to me, hey, Monica, there's this thing called social media. How do we do market research on that? Because we don't have the teams, we don't have the budgets we used to have. You know, how do we use social media to do market research? And I was, you know, had read that you know, sentiment accuracy was 60%. And I wasn't too enamored with big data. It wasn't my personality anyway. I liked the qualitative and the digging in part. And so I'm like, well, how do I use social media to do market research? Um, And so a friend of mine who worked at Land's End 
told me about some research that they'd done using Facebook private groups. And, and I did that uh, for these two clients. And I did actually kind of like a, I did a combination of Facebook groups and live focus groups. And I think in one case, it was like ethnographic studies. And I actually had a couple students from the Nielsen Center help me right. so that they could write a kind of case study, like side by side, you know, how, how does one differ from the other? What do you learn? Um, and I really, really liked this social media approach. And so I thought I could make a business out of it. So I spent some money with the American Marketing Association to put on a, a webinar and I had 1,200 registrants for my webinar. It was like, would, will social media replace market research or something like that? <laughs> and I got just all this interest, groundswell of interest. And then I did follow-ups on these 1,200 people. And everybody was asking me what platform I had. Like, they were all expecting me to have a technology solution. <laughs> and interestingly, none of them wanted to do research on Facebook because of data ownership concerns, primarily. So if, if you put your new product concept on Facebook, they own they own the rights to that wow. image or whatever they could. So, so I realized that if I wanted to do this really cool social media research, I kind of had to build a software platform. And so I, that was the kind of got me on my way. <laughs> that is fascinating. You have an awesome marketing research background, clearly an entrepreneur. You know, it sounds like coding software is not going to be one of your key strengths. Do you want to walk me through how you create a technology <laughs> company without expertise in that area? <laughs> one of the things that I had learned and I think is just my one advice to any of your listeners is to never worry too much about what you personally can do and recognize that you have as much power as your network. I felt like the best way for me to go forward was to just find people who did know uh, how to start a business and what this process took and what it looked like and, and how would I go about building a tech company if I don't know how to code. And so I met some great people along the way. Uh, I had breakfast with a guy who ran a like an accelerator program here in Wisconsin. He said to me, you know, Monica, I think it's going to take about a team of six and probably one to one and a half million dollars to get this off the ground. Wow. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> um <laughs> And then I met some other people and they're like, you know, you really need a co-founder. You shouldn't be doing this by yourself. And then somebody said, you know, what you should read is The Lean Startup. So I'm like, okay. So I got this book called The Lean Startup and I read it cover to cover and I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create this product. And I came up with the name DigSite and I'm going to just make it a PowerPoint deck. And that's going to be my V1 of my product is just a PowerPoint deck. And I'm going to see if I can sell this idea to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went out with my little PowerPoint deck and lo and behold, I had four of my customers, uh, current consulting customers interested if I could actually create this technology. So I'm like, okay, so how can I make a V1? And I found a, a, a platform. It was just a social media platform. It wasn't for market research. And I kind of bought a license to that. And I mocked up, kind of made it kind of work as an MVP. And I sold it. And, I, and a customer spent money. They gave me dollars to do a community. And that was actually uh, Subzero, who was, was DigSite's truly first customer. Then I had a customer to want to buy it. So now I needed to actually build my functionality. And um, so I went and I looked for a software development firm, found somebody who could build the V1 of the product for me. Through that process, realized that you absolutely do not want to outsource your development and uh, found a co-founder and hired a developer and 
incorporated and raised a little over a million dollars. And here I am. Wow. That is an incredible story. You know, I didn't realize that the Lean Startup was one of the you know, inspiring pieces to, to help you get going. I've read the Lean Startup as well and think it has a ton of implications for marketing research and we'll probably address this in, in future episodes. But um, I love that. You pretty much nailed it on the head, right? So many startups think, oh, I need to invest a million dollars, make this Cadillac version of whatever product or service they're going to have, only to find out that it's not quite what they needed. And you really just want to start small and learn. And that's exactly what you did. I love the idea of, you know, <laughs> getting initial investment with just a PowerPoint deck for a website, right? And that's that's all you need, right, to get started. So I want to transition a little bit. We've talked about your career, which I find really interesting, just the broad array of things you've had a chance to work on. I want to transition into sort of a second area that we talk about on this podcast, which is around methods and sort of step-by-step -step ways of doing research. And so you've mentioned um, agile research before, sort of this online qualitative research, which is what DigSight is about. You know, could you give us a little overview of what is agile research and you know, what it means and where you think it's going? Absolutely. So agile research is really this idea of simultaneously designing, testing, and learning. So rather than thinking about market research as something that you do upfront and you learn and then you go off and you build something and then you come back and then you test it later, like stage gate, that's kind of how it worked. And then you kind of got a pass fail grade. And then if you passed, you went on to the next phase. And if you failed, then you went back and you reworked. What Agile is really about is saying you should be doing that simultaneously and very quickly, typically in these short cycles. So in software development, it was often a two-week sprint um, that an organization would do. They would build a software feature. They would uh, essentially test that feature, learn, and then kind of build on the next set of functionality until they were, you know, kind of in perpetuity. And so that concept really uh, has kind of come into market research as companies realize that their development processes uh, are, are really long. So someone like a Sub-Zero could take years to design and build a, a new refrigerator or a new oven, and they needed to cut that time in half. How do they do that? This was this agile methodology. And so agile research really came to, well, how do we do research in a week? How do we do, how do we not only do market research in a week, how do we go from, I have a question to I'm doing a piece of research, to I have the results, to the team knows what to do about it in a week. And, wow. and that was just something that, that you know, market researchers couldn't do, particularly with qualitative research. I mean, it usually takes us two weeks just to recruit for a focus group. So it sounds like clearly, you know, DigSight is a huge piece of that. Are there any other folks that you see, just more broadly speaking, who are doing agile research and what that looks like? One, one company that I, I think is really exciting um, is a company out of Cincinnati called the Garage Group. And they kind of, in some ways, tapped into uh, what Google Ventures uh, ultimately published as design sprints. So design sprints are not agile, but yet they are agile. Um, it's funny, I actually got to meet the person, uh, the author of the Google Design Sprints book. And he said, well, I just don't think of us as being agile. And I'm like, but but you are. But Google Ventures did with the design sprints, I'll kind of start there, was they said, what if you could just take a one-week period of time and 
have a problem, brainstorm on that problem, start to build some solutions, test with five consumers, and uh, at the end of that process, kind of have uh, you know your first step of your design figured out, and then and maybe that first step is you know just part of the final solution. Maybe it is the final solution, but usually it's it's kind of like you're you're you might do a sprint around strategy, and then a sprint as you move through uh, some specific design decisions as you're building a, a, a solution. They sequestered everybody into a room, and all the market research that they did was in person. So maybe not kind of how DigSite approaches things, or at least how Google Ventures was doing it. But it certainly inspired, I think, that whole design industry. And um, so platforms like user, user testing that were being done for like usability research started to kind of come into play with, you know, how can we use those kinds of methods where people are in context doing something to test. The problem is a user testing platform works for software. It works for websites, but doesn't necessarily work for physical products. So then you kind of have to come up with that method. And so what Garage Group did was basically come up with different types of sprints to help companies with like strategy and, you know, design and development of physical tangible products. And they would kind of sequester people for a week. Um, and then they would, they, what they do is they, they'll either do, they do all sorts of different kinds of research, but they'll often do kind of like dig site communities on day three and day five of that five day process. But they'll actually take a team through the entire challenge of how do you quickly design, build, and test. Um, so it's not just the research platform. It's kind of helping the entire team understand that process. I didn't realize how closely DigSite and the Agile process was connected to sprints, which I've heard a lot of from Lean Startup as well as, you know, the tech space, as you mentioned. Super interesting. I'm curious, you know, as you think of the audience here, we're all trying to answer business questions with research. Can you tell me a couple scenarios where um, DigSite and just online qualitative research that's similar to that is a really good fit for? We see kind of three areas. So one is in customer experience kind of work. So one of our big customers who we've co-presented with is uh, American Family Insurance. And what they did as an organization is they decided to move to these sprints. And in their company, they have like 20-day, 40-day, and 60-day sprints. So they're not like the one-week sprints. They're longer sprint cycles. But the challenge that they were facing was that in those those 20-day sprints, a person on the development or innovation team or customer experience team might go up to go to a mall or go to down to the Capitol and just interview man on the street kind of thing. And the market research folks got wind of this and they're like, that might not even be your target customer. <laughs> like, I'm not sure that that's the right way to do research. But from that team's perspective, like, yeah, but we can go out on a Wednesday and do that. Whereas if we call you, it takes you guys, you know, weeks. And so what that insights function was able to do um, was that team was able to kind of transition to being that kind of agile resource for those teams so that they would actually run uh, dig site sprints and they have their own you know ability to kind of instantly pick their sample, go live even overnight, and then kind of run these sprints with the with the team. And so for them, it really helped with everything from they give an example of a new loyalty program that they were kind of considering various offers for that loyalty program. One was like about planting trees. And they were able to kind of 
test those things out really quickly and make research more central. And then they actually turn that into like monthly lunch and learns. And they said, you know, now we're doing 20, 30 studies in a month. We have a lot to share at those lunch and learns. And so they were able to kind of get a lot of excitement in the organization about informing decisions earlier and informing decisions as things were being decided, as opposed to someone creating a whole new billing system or a whole new, you know, loyalty program and not getting getting feedback until they're far along the path, essentially. Um, so that's kind of the the customer experience part of it. Um, I mentioned SubZero is one of our first customers. And, and today, they do 100% of their field testing through DigSite. Um, and one of the things that they were able to kind of figure out is how to um, do testing, not only in homes, but even in the lab, um, where they had people kind of making products and make that process, again, very fast and efficient. So it isn't taking them weeks to get feedback. So even though they might do an in-home for 90 days, they were able to get feedback on that first week. And they used to have to kind of send out these surveys and then they might send someone in home after 30 days or 60 days. But instead, what they did is they set up the dig site where they were able to, say, the first week, have people test um, making a Thanksgiving dinner or test the probe or test the the clock or whatever. And and the engineers were able to watch that. And if they saw a problem, any kind of problem, because the consumers could also post like, hey, my fa- fan's noisy, they were able to respond immediately versus waiting for the research study to be completed. So for them, that agile process became, you know, it, it took their field trials oftentimes down where they could start by the end of the field trial, they might have already made changes to the product as opposed to waiting to the end of the field trial to get results. Um, so that's kind of on the on the product side. And then on the marketing side, uh, a lot of work on early testing of uh, positioning, repositioning, advertising, communication, viral videos, that kind of thing. So I think Pella is a, a great example of, of that where they now have their marketing and creative team using DigSite to help them really inform that positioning and that early ad development work as opposed to just, you know, reacting to something after it's been developed. And 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 that's a tricky one because you have to get the creative team and the whole organization to understand that you don't have to have a final product that's perfect to take it and do research on it. It's okay to do research on on an early idea. And they've really, I think, done a great job of providing people feedback that's useful, but not putting up a yes-no flag for people, right? Not saying this is a good ad or a bad ad, but simply saying, here's what we learned. Consumers understand this or not understand this or whatever. That really made the marketing team and the creative team feel empowered as opposed to judged. And I think that's really led to them being doing many, many more of these research sprints because people don't feel threatened by it as opposed to, say, traditional kind of ad testing. Super interesting. So just going back to your your three categories of how um, DigSite so- solves business problems, one is customer experience. Um, another, is it fair yeah. to say innovation? So like getting iterative loops on how to come up with new products. And the third is it sounds like positioning or sort of advertising development. Is that fair to say? Yep. Okay. That covers a wide swath of challenges that, you know, businesses of all size face. So that's, that's fascinating. I'm curious, you know, coming from a research background, I'm sure you ran into this as well. A lot of people talk about sample size 
and well, if you only talk to three, four or five consumers, then maybe they are not representative of everyone else. How do you justify using smaller sample sizes when doing this research and coming up with findings that you can feel confident about? Yeah, so there's two sides to that. So the first side is that you're never actually looking for a representative sample <laughs> when you do uh, this kind of work. Typically, you're looking for a very specific kind of person. So think about it this way. If you're developing an innovation that you think will help people who have they live in a, maybe it's a new window for people who live in noisy neighborhoods and it's a quiet window. <laughs> and that's your idea. <laughs> you want to talk to people who live in noisy neighborhoods, right? So you might look for someone who owns a home in a noisy neighborhood that actually has the wherewithal to buy this, right? And you kind of go through this laundry list of like, this is my perfect customer. And then you find some of those people, maybe 10 or 15, and you see if they, if this resonates with them, if it's the right solution, you know, that kind of thing. If it doesn't work for them, it's sure as heck not going to work for the rest of the population. So it's it's very much this sense of very micro-targeting your sample to make sure that you're talking to exactly the person that you think would benefit from, right? This would be a good... Uh, would be influenced by your ad or would be influenced by your product and and understanding them. You'll, you're going to see if you talk to, say, 25 people, which is probably the most common dig site size, you're going to find one of three things, right? Either the idea does extremely well and everybody seems to, to resonate with everything about it. It does extremely poorly, in which case you're, there's a whole bunch of things that you didn't address that need to be addressed. And, and you're going to go off and learn off of those, right? Or you're going to be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and I think that direction really helps the team ground itself in, is this even ready for quantitative testing? And, and why should we go test something that's not ready? So I think there's not like there's a gosh, don't ever go do quant testing. But I think there's kind of a, you know, you've got to pass this minimum bar. And by the way, you need enough feedback to get better as you go. And so if you can get that feedback and get better and then be ready for a, a test, I think you're a little bit better off than if you just test something, find out that it's bad, and then not have enough depth of knowledge to make it better. And so that's definitely a, a mind frame as opposed to, you know, traditionally how researchers were you know, we're, we're taught. I do think the sample is really important and the right sample is important. But again, you know, basic, well, I won't say basic, but one of the things I learned from, from Gil Churchill and the AC Nielsen program um, was it has, the sample size has to do with how different your sample is, right? How homogeneous or heterogeneous your sample is. So if you've got a group of people that are alike and you're testing something among them, you can feel pretty confident with a smaller sample size. If you've got very many, very different audiences, it's going to be hard to just talk to five people because then you might only have one person from each of those audiences. Um, and so that's something you have to be really mindful of when you do agile research is who is that target? Or if there's multiple targets, then what does that mean for how you're going to do, do your testing um, so that you're making sure that you're kind of representing those, those groups? Gotcha. That totally makes sense. And I love that rule of thumb, right? Thinking how heterogeneous is my target audience and maybe have that influence the kind of sample size that you go for. Yes. And I think that that's interesting direction that the industry has taken as well is, you know, you have these tools um, like uh, Zappy Store who are trying to do very rapid quantitative testing to try to make that 
that quant validation also be something that you can do in a short period of time. So it's not agile in the sense of um, a sprint where you're where you've got a, a really high degree of learning going on with the team as you're building. It's more of a like a, a quick test, but that also plays into agile because I think there are times in which you do need that validation and you have to decide, you know, is that zappy test rigorous enough for that? Or do you truly need for the a dollar investment put on this, right? Do you truly need a, a, a more rigorous uh, you know, volume estimation kind of methodology. So I don't think Agile says, you know, you should never go out and do a quantitative test. I just think that you have to kind of decide if you can de-risk the decision through Agile, you may never need to do a quantitative test. You just test and market. But if you can't de-risk it enough, then you need to do quantitative testing. And that's a, kind of a decision that the team needs to make and where I think researchers can play a really strong role. Well, good. Well, Monica, I've been inspired hearing the case studies, hearing how you've developed your career and, and where you're at now. Uh, how can folks who are listening uh, reach out to you and learn more about DigSide? Absolutely. Well, I, as I said, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I probably check it as often as I check email. So please go find me on LinkedIn. It's Monica with a K. Uh, also, the website is digsite.com. There's uh, lots of information there. And I'm happy to connect with anybody. Uh, love to continue the conversation. Um, it's a little bit of a passion of mine. Thank you so much for making time for this. I will put uh, links to your website um, as well as um, your full name, obviously, in the show notes and in the episode as well. And so people can look that up. But uh, thank you again for making time. Yeah, great. It was great to chat. That concludes my interview with Monica Wingate. I was super grateful for the opportunity to talk with her. As we close out this episode, there were three things that came to mind during that interview with Monica. First is the Lean Startup. If you haven't read it already, I highly recommend grabbing a copy of Eric Reese's book. One of the key principles in the Lean Startup is the idea of an MVP, or Minimum Viable Product. The idea is you need just enough of a product or a service in order to get feedback. For instance, Monica used a PowerPoint presentation, which was just enough of a feel for her new service in order to get interested buyers before she invested money in building a new platform. The second big takeaway is finding and following your passion. It's easy when you're not successful in one area to sort of give up or think poorly about yourself. What I loved about Monica's story was that even though you know, corporate research wasn't the right fit, even though ad agency research wasn't the right fit, she continued to find other opportunities, which ultimately gave her the opportunity to own her own business and be very successful. If Monica had not discovered and followed her passions, she wouldn't have been in the place she is today. But ultimately, following your passion, knowing what that is and being excited about the work you do can open up greater opportunities and bring more satisfaction. The third point that I had from this interview with Monica was this importance of networking. I love this quote that Monica says, never worry about what you personally can do and recognize that you have as much power as your network. Monica clearly took that to life as she tried to launch a dig site and really didn't know how to code, but she found people who did know how to code, found people who did know how to do, develop software, and because of that was able to help launch a very successful business. Feel free to visit diggingforinsights.com. You can find show notes, some of the details that we've talked about today, so that you can refer back to them even if you weren't able to jot down things as you listen to the podcast. 
Until next time, I'm wishing you the best as you dig for insights that will grow your career and your business.